The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. Feel free to follow along in your bulletin or in your Bible. This is Paul writing. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Good morning. As many of you know, we are currently in our vision series here at Hope Chapel. And kind of as part of our church rhythm every year, uh, we spend a few weeks going through a book or a series focusing on our vision uh, at Hope Chapel to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city. And one thing that we've looked at the past couple weeks is that this has aspects of cultural, spiritual, and social renewal. Um, and, and as Todd has mentioned, like reminders that we put in our phone to remind us of things that we constantly forget. Uh, we do this every year to ground us in that vision that Hope Chapel was planted in 10 years ago. And this year we're gonna, uh, we've been going through the book of Philippians. Uh, and and the, the book's theme is, is kind of joy in the advancement of the kingdom. And so uh, we've been using this to kind of refresh our minds and our hearts of our vision to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city. And so the past two weeks, Todd focused on what partnership and the advancement of the kingdom looks like and also what confidence last week, specifically in our weakness, looks like in the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at what it means to have purpose in the advancement of the kingdom. And what we're going to see is that it's Christ's glory on this earth that is our purpose in kingdom advancement. Um... I don't know if you're anything like me, uh, but purpose is something that I I struggle with, and it's something I've always struggled with my whole life. Um, I I think it's something that's really important for me to feel like the things that I do um, or that who I am has a purpose. And I don't know what that says uh, about me, Um, but Christianity in a lot of ways is about purpose, right? Right? The church environment um, that I grew up actually spoke to this a lot, both directly and indirectly. And if I could boil down the message that I heard from that environment succinctly, it it would be these two things. Here's your purpose as a Christian. First, be a good Christian. Do the right things and don't do the wrong things. And then second, tell others about Jesus. That's, That's my purpose in life, was to be good and to tell others about Jesus. Here's the problem. I always sensed that there was something more 
that we were called to as Christians than just that. Um, and, and I don't mean that in necessarily a positive sense. I mean that in the sense that uh, I wasn't happy with what they said was my purpose on earth, and so I looked outside of that to try to find purpose in other places. One of the ways in which I did this was I always had an affinity for culture. Uh, I loved listening, watching, reading, and engaging with it. Uh, and because of that environment that I grew up in, I, I thought that I had to do that in secret. Like that was not something, that was a shameful thing to want to engage with. Pop culture, television, uh, to even the extremely nerdy fantasy books that I used to read, uh, and still do, um, film, uh, it, it, it was something that fascinated me, and yet that I was supposed to ignore or push away, or that wasn't right. I had a truncated view of the gospel's engagement with culture. But if that was true, I almost had a non-existent view of the gospel's engagement with social issues. The, the social realm was relegated to the realm of politics and government, personal responsibility, and nothing else. And as an upper-middle-class uh, white kid, I had, I had no reason to think otherwise. And many of you don't know this, but uh, the town of Ferguson is in St. Louis. Uh, it's actually 10 minutes away from, from the city. And while Andrea and I lived there, uh, we actually went there a couple times. And while I was in seminary out there, Michael Brown was shot, and the entire city of Ferguson, St. Louis, and all of Missouri was thrown into chaos. But what you don't see on TV, and that often the, the, the political heads don't talk about, is that the falling out after that shooting led to incredible amounts of good in St. Louis. There were deep, deep and ancient racial tensions and hurt that had never been dealt with in the city. And because of the falling out of what occurred there, the first steps of healing were actually able to be, take place. The city came together in ways that had never happened before. And, and what I saw, and I, I saw this, I, I, it wasn't as much of me, but what I saw, that the center of a lot of these talks and this healing was the church. Many of my professors marched, um, and, and some even arrested for marching. And this wasn't for political gain or affiliation, but just not to support a political movement, but to stand in solidarity with those that were hurting and in need of healing. The churches in the city came together to help it heal, rallying around one another of different ethnicities and backgrounds to speak to the social brokenness and hurt of all. In this, I, I began to learn how deeply the gospel spoke to the social brokenness and needs of mankind. And, and finally, I, I truly feel like my life has been uh, one long journey that I am just now beginning of understanding what my purpose here is as a Christian. But one of the greatest experiences in my life was when I got to college and I saw that people knew Jesus. Which is funny to say, right? Because I was a Christian. I grew up a Christian. But, but not like I knew Jesus and that I knew a lot about him and how to tell others about him and how to live like him. But what I realized I didn't know is that I didn't know him intimately and personally. Like many of these people that I was around at college. They knew Jesus as friend, as savior, as king, as lover of their souls, not as an object to talk about. And in that, I began to learn a process of how deeply spiritually renewed I really needed to be when that was the one I thought I had figured out. You see, I don't know if you're like me, but I need this vision series really bad. 
I need it desperately because I need to constantly be reminded of, of my purpose here on earth. And don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that our purpose on earth is going to be found in the social, the culture, um, or even the spiritual realms. Our purpose on this earth is only found in Jesus Christ. But if we look to him for meaning and understanding and as our king and as our Lord and as our savior and as friend, and we begin to look to him at that fundamental level, it will call us to something. It will call us to glorify him in everything we do. And that's not just in the spiritual realm. It's not just in the cultural realm or not even just in the social realm. But, but the glory of King Jesus has to be proclaimed and engaged with, transformed by all three. Because there's none of it that he doesn't care about. There's no truncating the gospel that is as grand and as big as all of creation. Because there's not one square inch physically, socially, culturally that Jesus doesn't call his. But if you're anything like me, you, you don't do this well. And um, far, far too often, I still do this. I allow my cultural engagement to allow me to excuse any and all of culture that I consume. My generation's proclivity to embrace all parts of culture, uh, and I'm often a product of that, when often it should be critiqued, often it should be sought to engage with and transformed, and sometimes even rejected. Socially, far too often I allow the world to define what I think social justice is, where I should be passionate, rather than to allow Scripture and the Gospel to define what social justice is and what my role in engaging with it is. Spiritually, even my temptation is to to truncate and contain my spiritual life to a 30-minute quiet time and a, a prayer before meals or bed to check that off the list when our spiritual life is much bigger and pressing deep into the union that we have with Jesus Christ. And each of these different things, the temptation, at least for me, is for my purpose to become me-centric when the gospel calls us to something else. It calls us to glorify Christ. And Paul, in our verses today, shows us what the, this gospel calls us to. He, he knows that the entire purpose of his life is to bring glory to Jesus Christ for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. So he's writing to the Philippians to encourage them in this, to, to, to serve them and take care of them so that they will also learn to glorify him in everything. And this is why at the end of this chapter, in these verses, he says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, convinced of this, no, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ. That is the central kind of piece of this passage. And today we're going to see that this calls us to two things. That we must glorify Christ in everything we do. And uh, so our two points today are this. We must look to Christ for the hope of salvation. And second, we must look to Christ for courage in suffering. And the, the cool thing about these, this uh, kind of the way the passage is laid out is that Paul is always looking f- into the future to inform our present. He's always holding on to something that is eternal and in the future that gives him purpose and light in the present. And that's exactly what uh, this idea of the hope of salvation 
is. And as Todd mentioned to us in the past few weeks, this is Paul. He's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. Um, and while he's doing it, he's imprisoned. He was thrown in jail for the very thing that he tells the Philippians to do to proclaim the gospel. And that he was thrown in jail. And uh, as he's writing these very verses that we just read, uh, he has a trial that's impending. He, he's going to be put on trial in front of the Romans. Uh, and truthfully, he could die. He is facing certain death almost as he's writing these words. And yet, it's fascinating as he writes them because the major themes of this passage are joy and their hope and their confidence. That's, that's incredible. And I, personally, I don't know how he could do it. But it's also interesting that in 19 and 20, he says this. He says, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So where is this basis of joy, this basis of confidence, and this knowledge of deliverance coming from? Well, before we can get to that, we have to know, what is he hoping actually for deliverance from in the first place? And there's a few different options. The first is that he's hoping that he won't have to stand trial at all. That maybe they'll just be like, you know what, it's not even worth putting this guy on trial. Another option would be that perhaps he's hoping that he does stand trial in front of um, the Roman court and that they uh, decide that he's innocent, that he's not guilty. Another option is that he hopes that regardless of what happens in the trial, whether he's innocent or guilty, whether he lives or dies or set free or in prison for the rest of his life, that he knows that he has eternity with Jesus to look forward to, no matter what. And I think that, truthfully, all of these options fit the context, um, and perhaps more some than others. But I think what Paul is getting at is something different, actually, than any of those three options. And yet, is kind of all of them at the same time. The next verse, I think, shows us the answer. Verse 20 says this, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Life or death to Paul doesn't matter. The trial doesn't matter. Even his own personal reputation, whether he gets ashamed or not, doesn't matter. What Paul is getting at is that his purpose, his hope, is that in no matter what, Jesus Christ is glorified. You see, the hope of Paul's salvation is heavenward. But his hope is that Christ will be glorified no matter what happens. How could he do that? It's because his purpose in life was not his own safety. It was not his own shame. It wasn't his own ministry. But it was that Jesus Christ would be exalted. And this is really where the hope of salvation comes in. Because Paul was so united to Jesus Christ, as we're going to see in a second... So sure of his standing with him, both in the present and eternally, he could live in this confidence. He knew that no matter what, he was Jesus's and Jesus was his, that his eternity was set apart to be with him forever. And the knowledge of that future reality that he had, that he knew so confidently, changed everything for him in the present. The hope of salvation in him is what fueled him to be able to glorify Jesus Christ regardless of the outcome of the trial. Or any of his circumstances. And what I love about Paul, um, and this is so instructive to me, who uh, tends to look inward for my own strength 
and ends up failing constantly. What I love about Paul is that he shows that he can't do it on his power. And he shows us two things that actually enable him to have this hope of salvation. The first we find in verse 19 where he says that he rejoices because he expects deliverance through the prayers of the people of Philippians. Of the Philippians. If Paul has any reason to hope, it's because he believes that he is not alone and that he has people who are pleading with Jesus on his behalf. He believes that prayer is not happy thoughts, not something to do to make oneself feel better, but that there is true power in prayer. And Paul encourages the Philippians to pray for him, not that he will be saved or set free or kept from harm. He asks them to pray that at the trial, Jesus will be glorified. But the second thing that Paul shows us that enables him to have the hope of salvation is the Holy Spirit. He says this in verse 20, that he hopes that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that he's not only alone because he has brothers and sisters in Christ praying for him, but also because he has the Holy Spirit with him. And this is not on his power that Christ will be glorified, but it won't be through his talents, his strengths, or his giftings, or, or even his high character. But it'll be because of the overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit in him. Glorifying and exalting Jesus. Calling Paul to, in everything he does, to glorify him. Without prayer in the Spirit, Paul would have nothing nothing to enable him on his purpose and the same is true of us without prayer and the power of the holy spirit we will be lost on our journey in this world to find purpose in everything we do and that purpose to glorify jesus and so by way of application we're going to look at two ways that we must look to christ as the hope of salvation and how that future promise of our salvation changes the way we live in the present And the first is we must look to Christ for the hope of our personal salvation. And the second, we must look to Christ for the hope of the salvation of the world. So for our personal salvation, uh, Paul is operating here under the knowledge on his most fundamental level of his standing with Jesus. And he's instructing us that this changes the way that we view everything. It views our personal time, our comfort, our families, our relationships, our trials, even our brokenness and our suffering. Because we begin to see them as opportunities to make the name of Jesus Christ famous. What he's saying is that no matter what happens to us, our purpose remains the same. And we can only do that knowing that Jesus Christ died for us. And that we are his and he is ours. And with this knowledge and confidence of grace and love, we can do the work of the gospel And this means our homes, our businesses, the drudgery of the nine to five, the exhausting nature of parenthood, the difficulties of singleness, the emotional messiness that comes from relationships. In all of it, our personal hope of salvation is not that those things get better or easy or comfortable, but that Jesus is glorified in them. It's there that we will answer our calling in Christ Jesus. But what about the hope of salvation for the world. How, how does the future hope of that salvation change our present interaction with the world? Well, here's what, here, here's what I think that it looks like. I think it means that in every aspect of the world, uh, in our purposes, uh, the social, the spiritual, and the cultural aspects, we can often feel that the world is broken beyond repair or redemption. 
It can often feel that the world is so far gone and so sinful and so opposed to Christ and Christ-likeness that the only option is either giving up or rejecting it wholesale. But the hope of salvation that Paul is talking about here applies just as much to the world as it does to us, personally. If we look at culture, um, it seems that our era of the internet and social media, movies, TV, music, and otherwise is so marred by the fall that we don't have any place in it. That there's no goodness left in it. But culture was actually given to us as humans for the sake of God's glory. It's a part of the created order. Mankind was created to make culture, which means the fall has not broken it so far that we can't engage with it anymore. It means it's part of our calling to engage with it for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? It it does truly mean creating new culture, making it new. Taking our kingdom values as God's people set apart as a royal priesthood and engaging with culture in such a way that we bring about the kingdom in everything we do. And one thing that I love about Hope Chapel is that we have so many here that do this so well. It means doing things like making films from one's own unique perspective that's kingdom-oriented, though not strictly Christian like Seth Hall. It means engaging with films and TV from a Christian perspective like Mark Wingerter and Griffin Kale do on their Real World Theology website. It's like having website and books and podcasts like Kendra Adachi and Emily Freeman, whether from a strictly Christian perspective or not. It looks like the countless musicians here who create good music in Greensboro. It means our artists here that go out into the world creating beauty, making things new. And countless others of you that do this so well as you go into culture with the gospel as your foundation, making things new. It is our calling to continue to hear that calling. And one of the practical ways Andrea and I do this is one of our favorite things we do on a date night is to go see a movie. This is why, probably why I started the film form here at Hope Chapel because I love this stuff. But... Um, We'll go see a movie, and then we'll, we'll spend hours afterwards talking about it, engaging with it, both how it moved us emotionally and spiritually, but also what parts of the gospel did the artist actually see, whether they knew it or not? You see, we can engage with even the non-Christian aspects of our culture because all of good art is going to, in some, whether they know it or not, going to touch on the great story that is the gospel. And this has to and can happen spiritually and socially as well. And social justice has become a buzzword and twisted into a political term, and yet true biblical gospel-centered justice will always have a social aspect. There's no delineation between the social and the spiritual. And as Christians, we must look at the broken parts of our society, the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, and cry out for them. And this is hard, especially with how polarized our world is today. And yet, our hope of salvation is that Christ can still be glorified and bring renewal in the social sphere. And spiritually, it's easy to look at the church with its infighting, tough history, with things being done in the name of Christ that are heinous, to think that it is often beyond redemption as well. We see many people leaving the church for that reason. 
And yet part of our calling is to make sure that Christ is glorified in our churches. That sounds obvious, and yet we know our hearts, right? And I know mine. We know our weakness and our temptation is to wander, and it's easy for the church to lose sight of the gospel. But our hope of salvation is that through the prayers and the power of the Holy Spirit of the church, that even the church can be delivered, and that through it Christ will be exalted and glorified. You see, when Christ is our purpose, when we begin to find ways to glorify and exalt him for the sake of his kingdom in every circumstance, he will bring renewal. And that is our hope of salvation. And this brings us to our second point. So we've seen that Christ's glory is our purpose uh, in the advancement of the kingdom. Um, And now that we're going to see, we must look to him for courage and suffering and Next week, uh, I think it's next week, Todd is going to be talking more about suffering and what it means to engage with suffering and the brokenness that we experience. I'm not going to do that this morning. This morning, I'm going to hopefully look at suffering from the aspect of our posture only um, and what it looks like to have courage in our suffering. And as we get into this point, I want to tell you guys a story of courage and suffering to hopefully set the tone for the rest of our time. Many of you know this, but last fall, some of our missionary partners from Chad, David, and Rachel Carter came and spoke to our congregation. And the Carters are missionaries uh, that serve in a predominantly Muslim context, and people who convert to Christianity um, through their ministry endure hardship and persecution unlike anything I've ever heard. And recently, he updated us about a couple uh, and a man who had recently come to faith. The couple was named uh, Abe and Nyala, and they came to Saving Faith. And intentionally they did this. They published their profession of faith on Facebook so that people would know that they were no longer Muslim. And immediately after this, they received death threats. They were shunned and kicked out of their community. And and, and Abe can no longer find employment anywhere. Another man, uh, Eunice, was a wealthier Muslim growing up. And one day he found the Bible. He, He saturated in it and he came to saving faith. And as a result of that saving faith, he suffered beatings, he lost his job, false arrests, he lost everything, all his money for his faith. And David said that he's a super sharp guy, he he has an IT degree, and he could have gone on to a very extremely successful career had he not professed faith in Jesus Christ. Now all he has left is some clothes, a phone, and a Bible. But he loves the Lord. And last week, the couple in uh, uh, Eunice all were baptized publicly. And David said this uh, in the email. He said, praise the Lord for their courage. And in regards to their suffering, he said this. Please do not merely pray for the difficulty that they're facing to stop. He says, this is how the Lord often chooses to advance his kingdom. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, citing Acts 14. He says this, instead, please pray for the Lord to meet the needs of these believers bountifully in Jesus Christ. Pray for the Lord to give them boldness to proclaim the gospel as we all should. He says, don't pray for the difficulty for them to stop. But pray for the Lord to meet their needs bountifully in Jesus Christ alone. That is courage. 
And Paul, perhaps more than many, knew what it meant to suffer. Paul, who was beaten, persecuted, hated, and imprisoned for his faith, who died a martyr for his faith, knew what suffering was. And yet one thing that is consistent in all of Paul's writings is that he wanted his suffering, the very purpose of him going through it, to glorify Jesus Christ. And he could only do that because of a future hope in Jesus that changed his present view of his circumstances and suffering. Paul's whole life was devoted to, saturated, and focused on Jesus Christ. And his purpose in life was to be so transformed and empowered by him that the whole meaning of his life was only Jesus. This is why he says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. And in the Greek, there's no verb after to live. It's just to live Christ. Paul's goal in life was to be so united and filled with Christ that his life was Christ. So it's curious then, personally, I I found it curious. Why then are his next words to die gain? One thing that scripture shows us about death is that death came to this earth as a result of the fall. Death is not natural, nor is it the way that it was ever meant to be. We were created for eternity with Jesus Christ, like we see Adam and Eve in the garden And yet, as a result of our rebellion and sin, death entered the world. And dying is not something we were ever supposed to experience. So we should properly grieve death, even reject it as natural, inevitable as it is. And yet, Paul is saying that death is gain. Why then would death be gain? Because here's the other thing we know about death. Though death is unnatural and not the way it was meant to be, Scripture is clear over and over again That the one thing that we can be 100% sure of as believers in Jesus Christ, that when we die, we get to be united fully with him. Finally. Immediately. We can rejoice in that fact. But what Paul is not getting at here is that death is an escape. It's not an escape from our present sufferings and brokenness. Um, It can be an end to them but we don't look at it as an escape away from here. This is why living to Paul is Christ and his union with him, but to death also is Christ for Paul because it's complete union with Jesus. And this is why Paul is torn. He, he, he doesn't know where he wants and what's best or what he's called to. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, for that's far better. If he continues living, Christ in him will allow him to continue on in his purpose in glorifying Jesus. But if he dies, he gets the full and complete union with him he desires. One commentator puts it this way. To view death as an escape from a painful life does not seem to be the perspective of Paul. He constantly asserts in this letter that his painful life is a joyful life since it is centered in Christ. Dying is gain, not because it is an escape from life, but because it leads to union with Christ, which is the goal of life. What Paul is embodying and what I think David Carter is saying that his Muslim brothers and sisters are embodying is the courage to continue on in the work, this glorifying of Jesus in everything we do, even when it's hard, even when we're suffering, even when we're broken. Some of you are here this morning and you're sick. 
Some of you are here this morning and you have been sick. You've suffered a great loss. Some of you are here in an excruciating time of waiting. Some of you are in between jobs. You feel like you are losing important relationships or you have lost them. Some of you are struggling with depression and anxiety. A lot of your lives seem to be marked by suffering. And um, I'm, I'm 30. And um, I've seen more suffering than some, but less than many. It's hard for me to talk about these things, if you want me to be completely honest. And hear me when I say this courage in the midst of suffering is not something I'm good at. Actually, um, when I go through trials or true suffering, I shut down. And I don't mean emotionally shut down. I mean I physically, mentally, and emotionally shut down. Some of the hardest times of my life, I have been catatonic. I don't think I've suffered one time and asked for courage to endure it. Every time I've been through a time of suffering, I've asked deliverance from it. And yet I think that Paul is calling us here to ask for courage in the midst of suffering to glorify Jesus Christ. And I think it is okay, and he is encouraging us to ask for deliverance as well. But he's calling us not to escape as in death, but to so deeply push into our union with Jesus that we allow our suffering to bring glory to Jesus. To look at our suffering in a new way and ask how, in life or in death, can it bring glory to King Jesus? You see, even to Paul, death was not an escape from suffering, but an opportunity to share with Christ in his suffering and in doing so glorify him. He saw his suffering as a means to advance the kingdom. Um, that kind of courage, as we're wrapping up here, uh, in suffering is, is, I think, as Paul's showing us, is instructive and it's inspiring. And as we look at these Muslim men, they know their purpose so deeply that they're willing to lose everything for the sake of Jesus. And as I, I truly, I don't know if I have that kind of courage but I think I'm beginning to want it. But my worry is that I engage with culture because I want to, not because I want to glorify Jesus. Sometimes I worry that I get passionate about certain social issues because they're important to me, but not to glorify Jesus. Sometimes I worry that I'm not spiritual enough to be a pastor, that I don't glorify Jesus well enough in my personal time of study and my own personal holiness. But the reason that we do this thing at all is because there's grace for me and there's grace for you. Christ uses us in our weakness, in our brokenness, and when we don't find our purpose well in Him and we find it in other things, His glory can still be found. You know why? Not because of us, but because of him. Because it's not our work, but the work of Jesus Christ moving in and through us in our weakness, in our brokenness, that he brings about renewal. 
We proclaim his glory and his goodness, and we find our purpose in him because of the work he did on the cross for all of us. We can have the hope of salvation and courage and suffering because we have a God who became man, who walked among us, who lived a perfect life and died our death so that he could renew and restore this place and we could do it with him. And not for our glory, but for his. We have a God who sacrificed everything. And it's only in him and proclaiming that that we will find our purpose. Because there's nothing else in the entire world like that. There's nothing like him. Amen.